Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we're talking about whether it's good or bad for a country to have a permanent military. Our guest, Ned Dobos, is Senior Lecturer in Ethics at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia. He is the author of a a very important new book that you should get called Ethics, Security and the War Machine, The True Cost of the Military. Ned Dobos, welcome to Talk World Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Um, So this is a very interesting argument in this book uh, for for reasons not to have a standing army, even if you believe in the possibility of of a justified war, of a just war uh, for which an army would be raised and used and then uh, dismantled again. what are what are the what are the reasons uh, that you would make the case for such a thing? Well, there's I, I think um, I, I hinted these in the book, but I'd say there are at least there are six types of broadly six types of reasons why we should oppose the existence of a permanent military establishment. One of those reasons is that we think that war is unjustified. Uh, we think that um, either in principle or as a matter of fact, every time states wage wars nowadays, they do so unnecessarily or unjustly and or unjustly. Uh, so if you think that, then it kind of stands to reason that you're going to have, you're going to take issue with the existence of permanent military establishments. So so pacifism, the objection to war is one grounds for objecting to the existence of a permanent military establishment. But th- there are all of these other reasons why you might be an abolitionist. It might make sense to be an abolitionist, even if you're not a pacifist, even if you think that some wars are justified. So, so f- I'll just give you a, 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 a few of those reasons. Um, and we think like this in other domains, so we can easily extrapolate to the armed forces. So a lot of people think, for example, that um, uh, capital punishment, some people think that capital punishment is wrong in principle something wrong with the state uh, killing its own citizens, it violates the sanctity of life or what have you. But other people are of a different different view. They say things like, well, the reason we shouldn't have the institution of capital punishment is because the state, w- the courts will make mistakes sometimes. Okay. So that, that will lead to the execution of an innocent person. So it's not that execution can't be justified. It's just that we can't rely on the state to execute only the people that deserve it. So in order to avoid those terrible mistakes, we should just not have capital punishment at all, even if that means some people who deserve to die won't be executed. And you can make a very similar kind of argument, and people have made a very similar kind of argument in relation to the armed forces. This is sort of a a, a prominent view among Japan, some of Japan's anti-militarists. They think that, yeah, perhaps the Japanese self-defense force there are conceivable circumstances under which it could wage a just war, but we don't trust it to wage only the, these just wars. We think there's a good chance that it will sometimes participate in unjust wars. And so for the sake of avoiding the mistake of waging an unjust war, we should not have a permanent military establishment, even if there are conceivable circumstances under which its use is just. So there's that kind of 
argument. There's, you know, there's just a straightforward economic argument for it. M- militaries are obscenely expensive institutions. For any particular military expenditure, there's an argument to be made that that constitutes a morally objectionable allocation of scarce resources. For any such expenditure, I could point to a hundred other things that the state could do with that money, which would make the civilian population much, much, much better off. And insofar as that's the case, insofar as there's always something that the state really ought to do instead, you might say, uh, given given the vast opportunity costs associated with military establishments, states ought not to have them. I think, I mean, that kind of argument is particularly compelling. I like to use this example sometimes. Um, There are going to be some countries in the world, arguably most countries in the world, whose likelihood of being attacked by a foreign aggressor is very slim. Okay, maybe with some countries it's it's much higher, but there are some countries in the world that have no reason to fear that anybody's about to attack them anytime soon. And so those countries, insofar as they keep a military establishment on standby, just in case of that eventuality, and pe- people think that's fair enough. Well, there's no harm in preparing. But really, I mean, it, it, to me, it seems like the analogy I like to draw is... It, like to draw is between that sort of arrangement and um, the show Doomsday Preppers, where you've got these people that envisage some catastrophic scenario that might arise in the future. And the chances of that scenario arising are, are very low, but they're not zero, you know, some sort of economic calamity or Armageddon or whatever the case may be. And then these people go about essentially destroying their lives, preparing for that eventuality. You know, they take their kids out of school, they just eat perishable food and use all of their money uh, stocking up and they learn private languages and they arm themselves to the teeth. And they do all this just in case of this far-fetched scenario that might happen in the future. And and we look at that and we think, this is irrational. And yet, it seems to me that a lot of states are essentially doomsday preppers. There's very little chance of anybody attacking them, and yet they go about spending vast amounts of resources preparing for this just in case. So that's another kind of argument you might make for abolitionism. Um, I mean, I, I, I could go on. Perhaps I'll give you one more line of argument. Like I say, I've got I've got roughly six, but I'll I'll, I'll give you one more. We're at three, Ned. So if you want to give the other three, that'd be great. Okay. Um, often, what you'll find in popular discourse is when people talk about making investments in national security, what they're really talking about is making investments in defense capability, and they use these interchangeably, as though more defense capability must mean more national security. And it's it's just not the case. There, military, right. Right. exactly. you mean military, or not, it actually has a damn thing whatsoever to do with defending anything. Exactly right. Yeah, so, so, so but, but I mean militarized defense capability. Um, but those two things don't necessarily align. Um, so there are some circumstances in which having a military seems to be self-defeating. Uh, 
in the sense that it makes the civilian population that is meant to be the object of protection here, it makes the civilian population less secure, all things, all things considered, than it would be in the absence of the military establishment. So there's all sorts of scenarios where this might arise. I mean, here's one. Um, I, I recently learned that the country of Bolivia, between 1950 and 2010, uh, had something like 23 military coups, 11 of them successful, uh, never never been attacked in that period by any outside force. So it seems like in order to defend yourself against this external threat, you create this establishment, and then that establishment end, ends up attacking the civilian population and, and its political representatives. Uh, so it's sort of hard to resist the conclusion that in that sort of scenario, these this civilian population has become less security. Their, their security has been decreased in virtue of their having this military. You know, 23 coups over that period. Um, and, but there are, there are yeah. other, kinds of, uh, other kinds of cases as well where it's not about a military coup. It's just about uh, nobody, no adversary had any intention to attack you in the first place. Then you go ahead and create a military establishment. That military establishment makes your adversaries fearful about what you intend to do with it because intentions are opaque and no, they can't be divined with 100% certainty in international relations. So that triggers this security dilemma where what we do for our security contributes to the insecurity of others. And that can really lead to an arms race, can spiral out of control. Uh, and at some point, you might get a preventive attack where they attack us precisely because we have this military and they're worried about what we might do with it right so again the the chances of the average citizen in your population being subject to some physical violence has gone up by your creating this military establishment so it's it's self-defeating i i call this prudential abolitionism there are circumstances where it, it's just prudent to to be defenseless people think that's very paradoxical for some people to get their heads around sometimes going in defenseless makes you safer being defenseless is prudent um we're speaking with ned dobos who is senior lecturer in ethics at the university of new south wales in canberra australia and the author of ethics security and the war machine the true cost of the military ned can i give you another variation on that last theme and you tell me if it is a variation on the theme uh what about you have the biggest military in the world and you declare a war on terrorism and you attack some impoverished uh disarmed nations halfway around the world and you set up a prison camp on the island of Cuba. Uh, and year after year after year, terrorism increases. And you have dozens of people, the minute they retire from the US military saying, you know, every missile we send is generating more enemies than it's killing. This is actually not working. And you stop and think, how many doors would Canada have to kick in if it wanted anti-Canadian terrorists on the scale of the anti-US terrorists that are being generated by the war on terrorism. I, I mean, isn't that an example of counterproductive military? Exactly right. So, I mean, it, obviously, there's going to be disagreement here as to whether uh, 
it's sort of hard to argue against the hypothetical. I guess the uh, the, the the counterfactual, the the defenders of the the United States' military activities around the world are, are always going to say something to the effect of, well, it might seem to you that uh, things are getting worse for us in terms of we're, we're being subject to more and more terrorist attacks, terrorism is getting worse. But they'll always say, but if our military wasn't doing what it's doing, it would be even worse than that. <laughs> so they envisage this really catastrophic scenario that would uh, that would arise. But, but you're right. Yeah, it seems to be a case where a lot of the time it seems like what the military is doing is uh, the military is solving a problem that earlier military activities created, right? Uh, yeah. the, the war then is what created these enemies or the circumstances under which these enemies uh, would arise. And this next war now has to tidy up that mess, but this war will leave a mess of its own. And this is why um, I, I can't remember who it was described uh, war as, as a racket. Uh, it's it, there's there's a very good book actually I, that uh, I should plug. It's uh, David Keane's Useful Enemies: Why Why Waging War Is Sometimes Better why, When Waging War Is More Important Than Winning It, and it's all about how uh, military establishments sometimes engage in activities deliberately in order to give themselves more work in the future. Yes, indeed. Um, I, I think I, I interrupted you, Ned, and we were only at four out of six of the of the oh. reasons uh, militaries are too costly. I don't know if you remember the other what the other two <laughs> were going to be. Yeah. Uh, so I okay, we've covered the kind of call it pacifistic abolitionism. It just says war is wrong, so war making institutions should not exist. Um, then you've got this kind of procedural abolitionism uh, some wars are just some wars are unjust we can't we can't trust the state to wage only the just wars so to avoid the unjust ones we should just get rid of the institution entirely then there's kind of the economic argument which just says this is a uh, an immoral allocation of scarce resources um, then there's the prudential argument which says that militaries are kind of counterproductive self-defeating or at least they can be and often are. Um, another kind of argument, and, and you can see this argument sometimes in in the uh, the the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, to which the U.S. founding fathers contributed to. They, they had concerns about the relationship between militarism and democracy. Or liberty, they saw that there was a tension between these these two institutions. So the uh, the the worry was that a military might, in some way, undermine democratic norms and and processes. Um, so, and there's really a, a lot to be said here. But it seems it seems as though they were right. Uh, for example. Um, in order for a for a military establishment to be effective uh, in in its own terms, uh, in order it, secrecy is required to protect whatever strategic and tactical advantages it might have. So they need to keep information away from the adversaries. But in, of course, in order to keep information away from adversaries, you've got to keep that information away from your own 
<laughs> constituents as well. So, so the existence of a military immediately means that there's going to be a limit on the free flow of information in the parent society. And this, that's obviously inimical to democratic oversight and accountability. Um, but, but that's not all. I mean, uh, there's, there's some, some quite interesting literature and analysis about, about the, the, the tension between the, the norms implied or the beliefs implied by the existence of a military and the beliefs that are required for the functioning of a healthy democracy. So, so for example, uh, a state's decision to maintain a military implies that it regards the use of violence as a legitimate and effective way to solve problems sometimes. But arguably, a healthy democracy requires that citizens reject violence as a means of achieving political ends. Right? So there's this yeah. mixed mix messaging. In order for, for us to participate in, in a healthy democratic politics, We've, we've all got to have internalized the belief that violence is not an option here. And yet, yeah. we've got this institution, this very large, very exist expensive, all-pervasive institution in, in our society, which our government throws a lot of money at, and we're all expected to kind of almost revere, which implies that, no, sometimes violence is, is an acceptable and, and honorable way to solve problems. So, so there are these tensions between democ democracy, democratic processes, democratic norms, and, 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 and mili militarism such that arguably you can either have a, a standing army or you can have a properly functional liberal democracy, but you can't have both. There's a, there's a trade-off between the two. And insofar as some, for some, for, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I, don't we see that reflected in the sort of uh, police violence of limiting people's civil liberties and free speech and free assembly and free press? Uh, you can't protest the war if you're going to speak treason. You can't have your videos on YouTube. They must be deleted to protect the state. Uh, you know, even in countries where every war you're supposed to scream freedom, 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 there's an erosion of civil liberties and, and free press during every war, right? Yeah. Uh, particularly during every war, but but even in peacetime. Uh, so the, the claim is it's not just that the the standing military establishment is going to result in the state temporarily suspending our freedoms for this period of conflict or this period of emergency. Uh, the the problem runs much deeper than that. It's even when we're not actually in in a conflict. In order to be prepared for whatever future conflict might arise, the state, in service of the military institution, will need to restrict our freedoms, restrict our liberties. There's, there is no counterexample. I mean, some people might say, "Look, uh, sure, it's it's true that states do, as a matter of fact, restrict the liberties of their citizens uh, in order to preserve military advantages, but they they need not." Um, you know, we should just seek institutional reforms that prevent them from doing that. But it's just, it's just never happened and it never will. Uh, 
insofar as we rely on this this instrument, the military, to uh, to make to be the main provider of national security, invariably there are going to be these kinds of privileges given to it, and we're going to defer to it in various ways, which means less liberty and less democracy. And for some people, that's going to be fine. They're, they're just going to say, look, uh, I'll take the trade-off. I'd rather have a military establishment attached to this society. That's more important to me than than liberty and democracy. But others are going to go in the other direction and say, look, if, uh, if we really value these things, uh, then we should be willing to tolerate a little bit more insecurity for the sake of ensuring that those values are fully instantiated in our in our country. So, so I call that liberal abolitionism. It's it's making an a, a, an argument for military abolition on the basis of a commitment to liberal democratic values. Um, I think even, there's even accepting the argument that the military is making you more secure. Yeah. So. Uh, Look, this kind of argument, yes, so presenting this argument as a trade-off, uh, it's, it's obviously very charitable. Uh, it, it, it concedes for the sake of argument that there is some advantage that comes from being militarized and that it, there's an advantage in terms of security. But like you say, and as we've already discussed, you might dispute that premise as well. But the point is, yeah. even if you concede that premise, even if you say military gives us more security, there's still there's still an argument to be had about whether the trade-off is worth it. Yeah, it gives us more security, but it results in us having less liberty, you know, the other things that we value. And there's still an open question as to whether the trade-off is worth making. And if you think it's not, then then you're what what I would call a, a, a liberal abolitionist. Um, the, the, the final one... Yeah, here we go. The, Where, the, the, the last one, yeah. The last one, I uh, let's call it progressive abolitionism. Uh, and these labels, I, I could probably find better ones, but this, this position essentially says most states currently rely on militaries for, to provide national security. But there's a, a whole lot of work out there, most famously Gene Sharp, uh, advocate of nonviolent resistance. There's a whole lot of work out there envisaging just different arrangements for national self-defense. Uh, arrangements which would essentially rely on uh, nonviolent means and methods. And if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, we're actually getting a mix of uh, violent resistance by the Ukrainian armed forces, but also a whole lot of non-violent resistance, which is proving to be equally, if not more effective in stopping the advance of the Russians into the Ukraine. Uh, you know, just people kind of blocking the roads, sabotaging the street signs so that the Russians don't know where they're going. Just little things like this, the accumulation of them can make things very difficult for an aggressor. So there are these we can imagine these alternative arrangements for national defense where currently nonviolent resistance is invariably uh, ad hoc and it's not pre-organized and resourced. It's just people going out onto the street and doing what they can. But what Gene Sharp said is, imagine if the state invested in creating nonviolent defense forces. Um, and we now have empirical research and 
some people won't believe it, but we've got empirical research to suggest that over the last hundred years or so, meta-studies have shown you take non-violent resistance, you take violent resistance, non-violent resistance outperforms violent resistance by a ratio of two to one. So yes, it's, it fails sometimes. Non-violence fails sometimes. It's not always going to succeed. But violence fails sometimes as well. And violence fails more than non-violence does. So, okay, that's the first step of the argument. The successes are not equal because the non-violent successes last a lot longer. Um, Ned, we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to make a case to you because I love this book and the case that you've just made. I want to make a case to you for for maybe a seventh uh, item on your list, Uh, and that is if you take seriously the idea that without militaries, you wouldn't have nuclear weapons and that nuclear weapons put us very, very much at risk, that those people planning for the apocalypse are not completely nuts, and that in fact, climate and ecosystem collapse uh, is not just a serious risk, it may be already locked in, uh, but a huge contributor to exacerbating it is militaries, not just because they get all the money that could be put to good use, but they are a major contributor to environmental destruction. Uh, and so if you want to survive th- those those twin risks of apocalypse, you get rid of the militaries. I mean, this, this I, I think that's worthy of, of, a, of a number seven on the list. What do you think? <laughs> um, with the... So it's almost like you read my mind when I was when I was distinguishing, trying to separate out these kind different kinds of abolitionism. I, I thought to include, uh, and this captures your second point, ecological abolitionism. So precisely the idea that uh, militaries contribute so much to CO two emissions, we'd we'd essentially reach all of our targets if we just all abolished our armed forces. Um, so that could that could either be treated as a separate argument for abolitionism, or it could be lumped into eco- economic abolitionism broadly construed. If we understand that to just mean, look, the costs associated with having a military and costs can capture things other than money. It can be it can be also environmental costs social costs cultural costs moral costs if we if we describe economic abolitionism in the loose sense of militaries are just prohibitively costly in all of these different ways then we can kind of take the the point about the environment uh uh and, and subsume it under economic abolitionism um as for your i mean the point about Nuclear weapons is is a a very interesting one, but playing devil's advocate, I've heard people take this in the other direction, where they essentially say, I, "I've encountered in conversation the following argument." You know what, Ned? I agree. We shouldn't. We shouldn't. I've heard the argument. We shouldn't have militaries. We should only have nuclear weapons. Right. So some people are of the view that now that we have nuclear weapons. That's all we need. Have nukes so that you deter any aggressor and that you don't need the rest of the military apparatus. So that argument kind of flips your first one on its head, but something to think about. Well, a few <laughs> seconds left. 
taking the privilege of the last word, there's also a, a strong argument to be made that we've gotten very, very lucky uh, with many near misses. And the more you proliferate these things and the more time goes by, the less chance our luck will hold out. Uh, in, in any case, I highly recommend the book. It's called Ethics, Security, and the War Machine, The True Cost of the Military by our guest, Ned Dobos. Ned, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. Thank you, David. This is Talk World Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talkworldradio.org. Talk World Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way.